Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is episode 15, One Does Not Simply Break the Friendship. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkien verse ahead. With that said, let's get into it. In this, the final chapter of book two of the Fellowship of the Ring, and indeed the final chapter of Fellowship of the Ring, there is a meeting that does not go to plan. Uh, Basically, they have to decide now whether or not they are going to take the route towards Minas Tirith or whether they are going to take the route towards Mordor, and the decision is placed on Frodo's shoulders Struck with not so much indecision as a crippling anxiety, Frodo goes off into the woods to think, where he comes across Boromir, who confronts him and tries to take the ring. In response, Frodo realizes that he must go to Mordor alone and attempts to flee. Now, of course, we all know that Sam realizes what he's doing and comes after him. And in the meantime, the rest of the party splits off in different directions into the woods looking for Frodo. So the big thing that happens in this chapter is Boromir trying to convince Frodo to give him the ring. And I noticed that both of you seem to have a much more sympathetic bent towards Boromir in this moment uh, than you maybe did in reaction to the movie. And I'm curious what your sense is of why that happened. I got the weirdest sense in this chapter being like, this was all a trap for Boromir, essentially, because they were never going to go to Minas Tirith. Like, they've been pretending this whole time, like, there might have been an option to do what Boromir was suggesting and go to Gondor. And that's essentially the entire reason he's here with them. He's said it from the beginning. He's like, I'm going home, guys. Like, you can come with me if you want. And They all just pretend to not hear that or like they're maybe going to do that. And then in the end, it turns out that Frodo has never even considered that option a a reality. He's like, no, I've never felt like that's the right thing to do. And he treats Boromir like some kind of villain for even bringing it up when he's been completely honest from the very beginning about why he's here on this mission. So like you're saying that it's been in contention since they set out from Rivendell that they might go to Minas Tirith before going into Mordor. Yeah, like, yes, we've always been going to Mordor in the end, right? Like, that was decided, the ring must be destroyed, that was said. But the timeline was never laid out, the route was never laid out. It seems reasonable for Boromir to be like, yeah, let's pass through my city. And he sets it up as this, like, oh, like, that's our really our best chance to have a good defense going into Mordor, right? Otherwise, we're just setting ourselves up for disaster. Everything he says sounds pretty reasonable until he like completely loses it and tries to snatch the ring. <laughs> but <laughs> but I don't know. It didn't feel like he was being overpowered by the ring until the very last moment. It felt like he was just laying out the plan that he's been laying out this whole time. Yeah, and it's 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 only now that his that he's kind of losing it emotionally. Um, yeah, this frustration <laughs> that nobody else seems to want to go to Minas Tirith. Yeah, and it's true what you said about 
this isn't exactly a different plan. This has been what he has been pushing for literally from the council meeting. He has said, well, this is what I think is a good idea. And this is why I think it's a good idea. And yeah, the ring is maybe making him more desperate. But I think he's also a little desperate thinking about like, you know, even Legolas and Gimli say, well, we would prefer to go to Minas Tirith, but if Frodo says he's going to Mordor, then we want to go with Frodo. So it's not even like, oh, we're going to go help Boromir. Plus, I think there's there is sort of a crisis of leadership in the Fellowship at this point because uh, yeah. it's been it's been implied since they left Moria that Aragorn is in charge, and it's Aragorn who felt relieved then when they decided to take the river because they wouldn't he wouldn't have to make a decision for a few days about which way they're going, and then lo and behold, they stop to have a meeting about which way they should go, and the first thing Aragorn says is, "Why don't you decide, Frodo?" This was some real bullshit. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, Aragorn, if you are being the leader of this company, you cannot suddenly be like, well, I'm not Gandalf, so I can't decide. That's literally what you've been doing. You have been taking on Gandalf's role. And Frodo doesn't know jack shit about anything. Why are you suddenly placing this on him? I don't know. This felt like a major punting of responsibility to me and it also is basically the reason that boromir is in this position right if they're if they had a strong leader telling them this is what we're gonna do from from even like before then they've had this opportunity really since lorian if they had that leadership then they wouldn't be in this position where boromir is still trying to promote his plan because he would know at this point that that's not the plan and he would either have gone off to gondor by himself like he's always been planning to do or he would have gone with Frodo to destroy the ring because he's agreed to do so. Yeah, I feel like Aragorn could have had this conversation just one-on-one with Frodo. With Frodo, before this the same point, thought. Right? Of like, mm-hmm. if Aragorn had sat him down weeks ago and said, look, you should be the one to make the decision about which route you take, but then I will help you figure out the logistics. I will figure out where everybody else is going to help support you in that decision. As opposed to, like, at the 11th hour, hey, buddy, make this choice. <laughs> this is what's infuriating to me, is, is later on in this chapter, we see Sam, like, actually apply some logic in a situation, and it's actually kind of the first time I've seen anyone <laughs> apply logic in any of these situations. Like, Sam does some deductive reasoning and figures out where Frodo must have gone, and I'm like, wait a minute, Sam should be making all the decisions, because he's clearly the only one thinking at all. Yeah, Sam, M- MVP by default. Yeah. Right. That's when Sam deduces that um, that Frodo is going to strike out on his own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that he must take the boat. Right. I was just going to say, why do, we, why do you guys think that, that there is no scene when Aragorn, uh, when Aragorn tells Frodo, you're going to have to figure this out by yourself? Because they already have a pretty close relationship. Is this perhaps because Aragorn um, doesn't like to do anything that could be seen as conniving or political? Um, or sowing divisions in the fellowship. I'm kind of like being forced to think that maybe Aragorn just isn't a very good leader at this point. <laughs> like maybe he's still got, he has to grow into himself as king, but nothing that I've seen so far from him am, am, is like making me think this is the guy that I want leading like the realm of men from now on because of Isildur's blood, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah. 
No, he's not doing a great job. My sense was that it might be a little bit um, not wanting to put the pressure of having to make a decision on Frodo sooner than he has to. That's something that we saw with Gandalf, too, this idea of like, oh, spare him as long as we can. And I'm like, that's not actually helping. He knows he's going to have to make this choice. Like, not talking about it doesn't mean he's oblivious and just like happily going along like la 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 somebody else is going to solve this for me but i i get the sense that in the same way that he didn't talk to frodo about gollum following them he's not wanting to share that information or he's wanting to sort of protect him in a really goofy way but isn't the entire point of all of these people being in the fellowship in the first place so that Frodo doesn't have to take on like additional burdens? So why are they giving him also the burden of making these choices? I don't know that I read it as the reason the fellowship was formed was to take the burden off of Frodo. I think they're there to help with the practical pieces of protection and like making shelter and things like that, right? And but I don't know that there was – I didn't read it at least as these people are here to make the decisions for you because ultimately the only one bound to the quest, right? We can go back to that chapter. The only one who is bound to take the ring all the way to Mordor is Frodo. Nobody else is under that obligation. Although apparently Merry and Pippin missed that memo. <laughs> <laughs> They they say this really weird thing in this chapter where, where they're like, no, we have to stop Frodo from, from doing this. And I'm like, um, did you miss why you're here? Well, I think the I think the failure in leadership causes a causes kind of a, a trickle down um in <laughs> irrationality throughout the fellowship, right? It's like the the um the burden to the burden to know what the hell you're doing, I think, falls on the leaders of the company first. Mm-hmm. Um and probably on someone like Mary and Pippin last. I don't know. I also think that in general, um, something that tends to be unrealistic about quest stories is this idea that you set out and you know exactly what you're trying to do and exactly how you're going to get to where you want to go. When in reality, that doesn't usually happen precisely because of sort of the, the, um, like building the plane as you fly it dynamics of planning that are true all the time for everyone. And I think that that's a little bit frustrating, but also realistic. That's a really good point. I think what frustrates me is more like, even if you end up building the plane as you fly it, most of the time you at least try to create a plan for the plane up front. And maybe that plan doesn't work and you have to change it later. But usually you have like several meetings up until that point to attempt to put something together. No, I'm not apologizing for it. I think like, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it would make a lot more sense if we knew that Elrond and Aragorn had come up with some kind of like, if they had drawn some kind of schematic where they're like, all right, we're just like launching a rocket. We're going to have nine. And then second stage, <laughs> we're going to have four. And then we're going to have two. And then we're going to have one. Um, but <laughs> instead, it seems like they didn't do any communication at all. And Aragorn is a shitty leader. Um <laughs> Who is, yeah, because it, like, it seems like sort of the thing that makes it, I'm going kind of on a tangent here, but it does seem like, you know, um, the thing that makes Aragorn kind of a good king theoretically, which is that he doesn't really want to be a leader for all the reasons that being a leader is problematic, is also clearly also his, his fatal flaw um, <laughs> in trying to lead anybody anywhere. Yeah, I I think the lack of ongoing planning, that it's only like at these decision points that they start to talk about it, 
is a problem. And also, you're totally right. A crisis of leadership at the top has this trickle-down effect. Because to be fair, Mary and Pippin do say, if we can't convince Frodo to turn aside, then we'll go with him. Right? They're sitting there going, well, we don't think it's a good idea for him to go. But if he's really bound and determined, and we think he probably will be, then we'll go with him to Mordor. You know? So there is that element of they're acknowledging he's probably made up his mind and is going to do this thing and they're willing to support him in that. But then I think about like all of them running off into the woods in different directions in a total panic. (laughs) And it's just like, this is where having somebody who you would actually look to, like you could tell, right? If they really felt like Aragorn was the person to look to to make decisions and give them directions, they wouldn't have all just been like panic. They would have been like, oh, what should we do? And they didn't do that. I also think that, you know, going back to something that you had in your notes, Navia, before the show, you said something like Bormir is wrong about, um, about, you know, when he says we should take the ring to Gondor, lend me the ring, I'll use it for good. He's wrong, but he's not that wrong. He's not as wrong as Frodo reacts to it, as definitely. <laughs> like, I feel like the, the backlash from Frodo is like, you are evil now. And, right. Yeah. And Boromir is really just laying out a fairly reasonable argument. And in fact, Tolkien kind of goes out of his way to continue to describe him as like friendly looking and like genuine until the very last moment. But up until that point, he he really goes out of his way to make Boromir seem reasonable. And he is reasonable, I think. I mean, if you are placed in charge of the lives of your people and they are constantly fighting this enemy that nobody is helping you with, and you're presented with an unknowable source of power that you think you could use, (laughs) it seems pretty straightforward why you would think that maybe this is the answer, right? Yeah, especially if there's, there's really nothing else that you can think of that's going to help you. And nobody's offering any solutions. I think at some point he actually says, too, he's like, we basically set off on this journey with like no plan. Everything we've done so far is completely whack. And we're placing the <laughs> we're placing the fate of the world on onto this idea that like this tiny hobbit is somehow going to get this ring to Mount Doom and destroy it. And when he puts it like that, you are like, okay, yeah, this doesn't sound like a great plan. And even if it is a is a plan, you want to have backup options, right? You want to have the answers to what do we do if this doesn't work? <laughs> like, what do we do if Frodo actually had died in Moria? What do we do if, you know, we lose members of the fellowship along the way? Which path do we take? How, who's going to defend us on the way? Nobody's answering these questions for him. And supposedly Aragorn is, is the born leader who he looks to being like, Aragorn, are you going to answer these questions for me? And Aragorn's like, meh, no. And, <laughs> And so, Why don't like, you do it, Frodo? Yeah, yeah, so it's it's totally reasonable that Boromir would be as skeptical as he is at this point of what they're doing. And it's also totally reasonable that he would think that his option is better. Yeah, and I think we only really, you know, as readers, our only real justification that we get going forward for why Boromir was wrong to say, let's take the ring to Gondor, is that Frodo thinks that it's wrong. Frodo feels very deeply that it's the wrong thing. And he feels it in his conscience mm-hmm. and, and he has such a, such a big, you know, kind of averse reaction to Boromir demanding the ring that it solidifies his resolve to go into Mordor himself by himself. Um, but besides that, we don't get an explanation of why Frodo thinks it's a bad idea. 
we all just as readers trust Frodo's judgment in the same way that like Aragorn trusts Frodo's judgment um, implicitly. Like even though Boromir and everybody at this point, their only experience with people who have the ring is that it slowly corrupts them over time and they're drawn towards Sauron. (laughs) So really his his thought that like you're going to betray us all isn't that far-fetched. Oh, that Frodo is going to betray everyone. Yeah. Right. He said he uh, eventually Boromir says like taking it into Mordor is your secret plot to take the ring for yourself. Mm-hmm. Which maybe, I mean, yeah, they don't know that it's not. Yeah. And I do think we have to kind of take it on faith that Frodo's internal sense of no, I can't put this off any longer. Like that's the thing that's wrong about this is trying to delay what I really strongly feel needs to be done and trying to avoid it anymore is what's not good because I want to, right? I want to keep avoiding it. And I know that's not healthy and I know that's not right. But I will say that like part of that too, I wonder is some of the friendliness from Boromir starts to go over from friendly to you're making me a little uncomfortable with how friendly you are trying to be, right? And I think we've probably all had experiences with people who are like trying to get you to buy something, trying to conv- get you to like convert to being a Mormon where they're super friendly and you're like, also something is not right. You know, no, hang on. Let's, let's not, let's not, uh, don't talk about Navia that way. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's actually funny, funny you say that though. Cause this entire scene to me started to read like some guy at a bar trying to convince a girl to go home <laughs> with him a little bit. <laughs> like, you know, like it starts out totally reasonable and he's just like, oh yeah, like, you know, I have a great place and we could just, you know, get more drinks there and we don't have to pay for them and blah, blah, blah. And it's totally a reasonable premise. And then like, she keeps saying no. And then eventually he's just like, you're such a tease. <laughs> yeah, fu- <laughs> fucking bitch or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why did you right. leave yeah, there? No, it totally feels like that. That yeah. sort of vibe to it. So I guess that's kind of why I feel like the strength of Frodo's reaction, because he hasn't reacted so strongly to Boromir's proposal. Like, when he has made it in the past, um, Frodo has not reacted so strongly in rejecting it. This is the first time that Frodo really says, like, no, I'm not doing that. Um, and you saying this is mm-hmm. making it clear to me that I'm not going to do that. And I wonder how much of that sort of strong reaction is because he's picking up a lot of the nonverbal, like, that Boromir is putting out. Yeah. Which, Ishani, do you feel like Tolkien accurately represented the that <laughs> we, we didn't? pick or that Boromir is giving I off definitely picked up on it um it's a different kind of gear than I'm sorry that's just the sound effect for it now um <laughs> it's a different kind of feeling than what Sean Bean gives off in the movies because I think Sean Bean in the movies is as Boromir much more sort of shady from the start um you know he just seems a little more suspicious a little more um, untrustworthy from the get-go. But I think Boromir in the books comes across as really good-natured and really earnest most of the time. But there's this element of he keeps pushing in this interaction. And normally he's been willing to go, okay, I disagree, but I'm willing to let you have agency and make your own choice. 
And mm-hmm. we've seen him do that multiple times up until this point. So the fact that he doesn't, that he does keep pushing here is, as you said, right, guy at a bar who just won't take the soft no for an answer. And so I think right. that is pretty accurately represented. And it definitely does give me that feeling of like, oh, this dude is a creep. Right. But what it means is that is that when it comes down to it, Frodo decides that Boromir's plan is untrustworthy on the basis of, of Boromir's actions towards him, the ring bearer. And I think what that signals is that by this point, Frodo has really taken on the ring as, you know, his burden, mm-hmm. as opposed to something that he can give, as opposed to something that he can give to somebody else, which I think was his, his idea, you know, at Rivendell. And I think for a, for a while along mm-hmm. the fellowship. Um, but I think, you know, as, as Frodo has come to, um, has come into his own as the ring bearer, I think he's probably solidified his, his internal feeling that, um, if someone is, if someone is going to treat him badly, then regardless of, of the merits of their plan for the ring, they shouldn't be trusted. I do think it says a lot about how much Frodo has grown, that his reaction to Aragorn telling him that he needs to decide isn't, no, I can't do that. It's like, okay, give me an hour, right? Yep. <laughs> like He's like, I just need to go think about this a little bit. I need a hard 60 and, to decide whether to go into Mordor. Yeah. And to his credit, the entire time that he's thinking about it, he's not even really like lost in his decision making he pretty much knows what the right thing to do is and it's more like he needs some time to just like strengthen himself to do it i definitely agree i think that's a pretty major indicator of growth from frodo and i it made me hopeful as we get into the next book, which I know is going to have a lot of walking, that I can try to find some of those <laughs> redeeming moments of actually liking Frodo as a protagonist, because I really did at the end of this chapter. Um, and I want us to pivot here, because I think we've kind of gone through all of the events or all of the major events of this chapter and sort of shift to talking about what it's been like to read this whole book and what your thoughts are. So I think the first question I have is just, hey, we're done with the Fellowship of the Ring. We made it. What was your take this time through? I felt like I liked this book, again, so much more than I liked it the first time I read it. Um, And I liked it because I think I saw different things in it than I saw in it the first time. I don't actually know what I saw in it the first time, but it certainly wasn't what I saw in it this time, which is a story about periods in history when um, the way things have been going in civilizations come to a crisis point and they can't go on any longer. Um, And the interesting ways that like uh, people kind of behave in response to that with like Galadriel saying like, okay, you know, no matter whether you guys are taking the ring to Mount Doom or whether you're going to um, lose it and Sauron's going to get it back, it represents, um, you know, the ring being found represents a crisis point for our civilization. Um, I thought that was really interesting. I thought the um, the writing was a lot more engaging than I remembered it being. And the way that he writes civilizations and simultaneously writes convincing cultures and also writes cultures that are non-human, so probably don't apply by all of the sort of human, you know, rules of, of behavior. I thought it pulls it off really well. Navia, what about you? I think I didn't want to compare this reading to when I first read it because like 
I was a child, so <laughs> I didn't know how to read. But um, but I, I will compare it to like my thoughts on the movie, which is like more what I have interacted with since then. And I've, I've always kind of thought that the movie did a better job with storytelling than Tolkien did with the book. But upon this reading, what I realized is that this book is actually like really political. Like it has points that it is trying to make from a political sense. And that is a little bit lost in the movie because of how much it focuses on the story. Not that they completely leave it out. They do, they do try to bring those things to the forefront. But I, when we decided to do this and we, when we decided to talk about this, I didn't know what we were going to talk about, right? I knew that we would have things to say um, because we always do, but I had no idea like what shape this was going to take. And I think it's ended up taking the shape of a lot of really interesting political discussions that we end up having about the mechanics of this world, but also how it maps to the mechanics of our world. And I don't know that I anticipated that, but I really enjoyed it. I agree. I mean, I think like things like the elves versus dwarves dynamic um, even seemed, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I don't think they ever seemed not political to me, but maybe it's that as my understanding of politics has changed, my understanding of the relationships that civilizations have in this book has changed. Now it seems much more like um, there. there's a, things seem a lot more material, like the struggles between races seem a lot more material this time around than they did the first time. Um, it's no longer like, oh, elves and dwarves just don't like each other for some reason. Or, oh, Boromir just wants the <laughs> ring for Gondor because he's weak. It's now, like, now it's clear reading the book again that it's it's like, oh, Gondor hasn't been getting any assistance in its fight against, against Sauron. I think it also spawned a lot of other fantasy literature that is meant for children. Yes. That lifts some of what seem to be the most apparent themes from the book and and put it into sort of this cookie cutter quest, you know, stereotype narrative. And so we kind of we kind of reflexively think of Lord of the Rings as belonging to a fantasy genre with a lot of other work that's a lot less political and a lot less complicated. Um, that's not a dig at fantasy in general. It's just that I think that a lot of the um, some of the books that I read in the fantasy genre when I was a kid or when I was a young adult don't feel nearly as complex or as mature as this does to me. Yeah. What about you, Shani? I think I've read other fantasy novels that feel similarly nuanced and layered, but I think I wasn't expecting this particular book to feel as nuanced and layered as it actually wound up feeling. I definitely remember my impressions of it from my last and only prior read-through as being, this is a book where stuff happens, but there's a lot of filler. And then going to the movies, which I think, as you mentioned, Navia, has been our primary way of interacting with this property. My sense was that they kept the meat of the stuff that happens, and they just trimmed a lot of the filler. But I'm realizing, or I've realized over the course of doing this read-through, that they also trimmed a lot of the nuance and a lot of the characterization and a lot of this sense of these people are multidimensional. And it's not just the world that Tolkien built, but he did actually also build people to inhabit it, people who seem like they could be real people. And I didn't anticipate that I would form such strong opinions or attachments 
to the characters I did. You know, I might have guessed that I would like Sam, but I didn't think I would like him as much as I did and for the reasons I did. And I didn't think I'd like Marion Pippin in the way that I do. And I I definitely didn't think I was going to like Gimli. Not that I thought I'd dislike him, but I didn't think I'd have strong opinions on his treatment in like multiple chapters of this book. And yet here we are. Because Gimli is the filler that you're talking about, I think. He has, of the characters in the Fellowship, like of the ratio of their, um, the attention that's paid to them in the movies compared to the books, I'd say that Gimli has the most that is let, let out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, by filler, I sort of was thinking about, like, interactions with Barlaman Butterbur. Remember him? Mm. <laughs> you know? And, and right. things like <laughs> that that just don't ever, or even Tom Bombadil, right? Who doesn't get so much as a mention in the movies and is entirely cut from that. And so I'd sort of known like, oh, yeah, they're going to meet people and do things along the way that just don't really matter to the overall plot that get cut. Um, But I hadn't realized how much of like that moment to moment, these are the people we're traveling with and this is what they're going through, we would also lose in the process. And so glad we're revisiting this because i think i'm appreciating it more i didn't think i would appreciate it more honestly kind of on the flip side though i think the other thing that i've been finding is that there are some really fair criticisms of some choices that tolkien (laughs) makes like i i think i you know while i really have been enjoying this and it's probably i've been enjoying it more than i anticipated i also totally get why people don't like this book Mm -hmm. like i totally get why it's intimidating and why some people have a hard time like pulling themselves through parts of it because some of it is boring to be (laughs) honest you can say it we're not gonna (laughs) yell at you yeah boring is is maybe a strong term but there were parts where we were just like really like more of this you can just say it was more walking that's where you're going with this it was more walking it was more descriptions of how this like land is laid out and like i think all of the description was more beautiful than i remembered it being but i i get why i haven't revisited these books for a while (laughs) as well and i think if i was reading them on my own and not doing this discussion i would maybe not have as as much of a positive experience because i wouldn't be getting to do that deep dive into the nuance that we love so much. Right. I think there are moments where you're like, more of the road, really? But I also, uh, I've also been kind of taking away from it that the walking itself is not the problem. For me, it's other problems relating to how he describes it. Like, for example, the fact that Tolkien can give you a long description of the lay of the land, and yet you come away from it thinking, I don't understand any of this. I'm going to have to go back and read that again. And then you read it again and you still don't really know and you consult the map and you still don't really know and you have to read it again after that. I think that's what makes some of those passages feel longer than they actually are. I think my my problem with them is we have nine main characters at this point and we know bits and pieces about each of them. And I think like a lot of the time that is spent describing the lay of the land could be interactions between these characters that give us more of a full sense of who they are because I I don't know that that's there yet. 
Well, I think people people make a fair point pretty often that that Middle Earth is the main character in these books. Um, mm. But I think it, even the character of Middle Earth, dare I say, is not built out as well as it could be. Um, <laughs> like, again, I think if you're going to describe the major landmarks, you can do it in a way that is easier to read, um, that you can do it in a way that's more resonant and sinks into somebody's yeah. consciousness without making them go back and nitpick through um, okay, you know, if I'm, if I'm standing here in like middle earth, Google maps, what is here and what is there and what is to my right, you know, that's not, that's how Tolkien writes it, or it's, it's how I responded as a reader to it. And that's not really necessary. I think it takes away from, from the building out of, of middle earth, even as a character. Yeah. You look at the character of middle earth and you're like, I thought this arm was here. That's the leg. Exactly. <laughs> like- <laughs> this entire time I've been looking at this drawing upside down. Shani, what were you? What was the last thing that you were talking about? Because I had something that I really wanted to say, and I've forgotten what it was. Oh, geez, I don't know. Uh, I think the last thing I was saying was about how there's sort of a increased nuance, and it's not just filler that got cut from books to movies. Right. I think that with respect to the movies, the main thing that I've been thinking about is how the story was written from a certain person with a certain perspective on the world at a particular historical moment. And it was adapted into films at a completely different historical moment by a completely different set of people. Mm -hmm. And I think that you can, you can see the changes reflected in how the characters are different. And you can kind of see how characters in this book get kind of translated into 90s slash 2000s character archetypes in the movies. I think in particular, Aragorn becomes a certain kind of character that Hollywood was kind of trying to mm-hmm. promote at the point where the movies were made. Yeah. The reluctant hero archetype, I think, is so big that in the movie, it, it overshadows some other parts of his character, like the fact that he's an asshole uh, <laughs> for a lot of this book. <laughs> Actually, it's funny that you just said that like he has a lot to learn about being a king because I think that might even just be the point, right? That he's not ready to do it yet. You know, he yeah. doesn't have any relevant experience and that's not like CV's like, looking a, a little that. thin, boys, but <laughs> no, I think that's really <laughs> a valid point and I want to know whether or not he's actually going to get that character development or if it's going to be something that Tolkien goes, ah, and then he learned a lot about leadership, a la, and then Legolas and Gimli were fast friends. And I'm like, okay, but you didn't show <laughs> us that. like, Right, because that's Tolkien's weakness. Yeah. He, he, loves, he loves implication. Yeah. And not explaining. But to Tolkien's credit, it's a lot more believable that somebody would grow into a hero than that somebody was born one. Yeah. But I guess it's just going to be, is he going to actually show us that process? Because I think my gripe, aside from... <laughs> the walking and the descriptions would be that more often than I even remembered happening, Tolkien will introduce us to a person or a bit of lore or an item and spend some time with it, but not really differentiate between the ones that are going to be important and come back later and the ones we are literally never going to encounter again and that have no bearing whatsoever on (laughs) the plot or the story or like character development and that sense of some of his prioritization feels a little weird that there's stuff that's included that like Glorfindel, bless him, still not entirely sure 
what the point of him is. Prioritize your backlog, Tolkien. <laughs> yeah, right. And so there's that piece of what about the things that do feel like they matter? And I think it's, you know, like as we've talked about before, some of that character building is not fair to expect of Tolkien, given that this is a this is a narrative that shifts between perspectives, right? That spends most of its time on Frodo, but also occasionally dips into the consciousnesses of of different characters. It's it would be I think it would be too much to expect that we're gonna see all of Aragorn's struggle to become a leader or to decide to, you know, do the shit that's required of him to become king. But we could get a little bit more. There are other ways, you know, there are other ways such as, you know, character interactions and dialogue to show that development. Yeah. Right. Honestly, I feel like it is fair to expect it because I don't think it needs to happen through point of view. I think it could absolutely happen as we see him start to make choices that feel like he's making an effort to be a better leader. And also, mm. we all know, right, it's not a spoiler to say that coming up, we're about to get a whole book that is Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli right. are tracking down the hobbits on their way to Isengard. To Isengard. To Isengard. <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's like we're going to get a lot of time with Aragorn coming up. And so Tolkien will have that opportunity. And it's just a question of is he going to make something of it? I will be interested to see in these next in this next section, though, whose perspective it is from, because you're right, Wanda, we have been seeing this from Frodo's perspective, but he is not in the next section of the book. So, right. I, yeah. I wonder if it will kind of shift to Aragorn's perspective. I hope we get Gimli. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think we get Gimli. Sorry. Uh, dream. <laughs> All right. The last question I have for you is less about the book and more about, hey, we've now made a bunch of these episodes and we've definitely mm. gone on some character journeys ourselves through <laughs> this process. <laughs> like, it, it's it been a, a learning journey, right, in terms of how it's gone and, and what we've had to figure out. Um, and I guess... What I want to know is, what's it been like? What's it been like? And what are you hoping for as we take the step into the two towers? Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm still formulating my thoughts. All right, cool. I'll go ahead with my shitty thoughts that are not formulated. <laughs> I, I've, this has meant so much to me this year. I, I guess the experience for me has been that I started out doing this podcast with y'all, feeling like we all kind of wanted really different things from it. And wondering how we were going to get on the same page and kind of come to a unified theory of like what this thing is and what it should be about. And somehow, I don't really think I can explain how at this point, I think we are all almost completely on the same page. And maybe I shouldn't say that out into into recorded space if it turns out <laughs> that we're totally not. But it, it feels like it feels like we're all kind of synced up at this point um, when it comes to what we're going to talk about when we, you know, when we have these discussions. And it doesn't feel like we're all trying as hard to make it into the thing that we each individually want it to be at this point. It's kind of become sort of a I don't know. We've we've ascended into a flow state, which I didn't expect. And I couldn't, again, couldn't explain how it happened, but it's mysterious and wonderful to think about that. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, 
That's also very sweet. Yeah. <laughs> done some growing. Yeah. I think like a couple of things. Concretely, this is much more work than I anticipated. I think like when I had the idea that I wanted to do something like this with you guys, I I didn't understand what it took to make an episode of a podcast because my experience with it had been podcasting with my brother who his his podcast is very different it's a live show that's recorded and so there's no editing work there is prep work but um because of that like I didn't know what it took to really edit an episode how long it takes and I also definitely did not account for the fact that like we actually have to do the reading and take notes on it um yeah there's so I guess like involved Yeah, I guess like when I started out, I was like, oh, I don't want this to be work. I just want it to be totally fun. And I think I just have to accept that like it's also a little bit of work. But with that said, I think this has been a really great exercise for me in how to work with people that I that like we're not obligated to work together. Right. Like we (laughs) we don't work at the same company. We're not being paid to do this together. There's nothing that like is forcing us to work as a team, which I think has been really pushing me in a great way to actually build my teamwork skills. Um, Because it's been a lot more of trying to get to a point where we all feel good about something rather than just being like, no, we got to get this done one way or another, which is a lot of the time how, how it operates in a workplace. Yeah, we have to reach agreements and actually all feel like we still like each other. Yeah, yeah. And I I don't think I like it. I don't think I understood that that was going to take effort at first because I'm used to our friendship not taking a lot of effort. Um, but it's also been a really healthy way for me to grow, I think, because I think that my friendships could actually benefit from that effort, all of them, not just these ones where it's not just about the fact that we're friends and we like each other. But you can do things for other people and you can come to agreements with them and you can work on your relationship with them to a point where you both are benefiting from it and you both are feeling good about it. And I think that's been a great like journey for me. That's what Boromir didn't realize. <laughs> yeah, he didn't understand the idea of mutual acceptance. <laughs> <sighs> I'm just basking in the like warm and fuzzy <laughs> feelings. I do like me some, like, gross, gross emotions. Getting my hands all up in there. Um, Ew. <laughs> Why was that way grosser than it needed to be? Because <laughs> I also enjoy torturing people. Um, making my friends go, Why? We've got a ah. great friendship, and you've got your hand all the way up it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but with more sincerity and less body horror. Yeah, I absolutely agree with everything that that both of you said that I think I had some, not doubts, but I definitely was worried about how we were going to reconcile the fact that we all had very different visions and very different approaches. And that at the end of the day, I wanted our friendship to survive making this podcast. And I didn't want this to be the thing that made us all like 
break up with each other. <laughs> and and I think we managed that. Um, and I think that has taken a lot of work. You know, and maybe that was the work that I wasn't anticipating was how much of the the negotiation and the navigation of what we wanted and what was going to work for all of us and what was going to make us happy in this space and working on this project and collaborating together and how much that was going to take like really conscious choices of we have to talk about these things and we have to meet and we have to make sure that we're attending to what else do we need outside of the podcast as friends to stay connected to each other and all of those pieces i think i wasn't necessarily expecting how much that would come into play but also i'm glad that it did because i think it gave us a chance to have conversations with each other that maybe we needed to have or maybe we haven't had the opportunity to have and in some ways i think that brings you closer with people to be able to have difficult conversations and come out of it still loving each other so i'm glad that we did that and i'm i think looking forward i'm just excited to keep doing this and i don't know that in the course of 15 episodes i have always been excited to keep doing this but i think at this point at the end of one book it feels like, hey, we reached a milestone that I didn't know we were going to reach. And not only did we reach that milestone, but I feel good about reaching that milestone. And I feel good about looking forward to the next book, even knowing what's going to come in <laughs> book two of The Two Towers, <laughs> aka my least favorite thing ever. I'm looking forward to it because I'm looking forward to being able to grumble and gripe about it with you guys. If Tolkien were here, he'd say the last stage of the podcast has begun. <laughs> hey, if you're listening to this in April of 2021, we have a special announcement. We're going to be doing a live watch of The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, the long one, in a few weeks before we jump into season two. Uh, we'll be watching it on Twitch, uh, and it'll probably be the last weekend of May. Our current plan is Saturday, May 29th, um, sometime in the mid-afternoon, but we'll just decide and send out some kind of announcement in the next couple weeks or so. If you've listened to all of season one with us, come claim your prize on Twitch, please, and watch the movies alongside us while we talk about how well it works as an adaptation of the books and as a movie on its own, and just as like a moment in pop culture in the early 2000s. As always, thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod, and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. If you like what you hear, give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen to. Gonna check okay. me some scores here. <laughs> Who are they playing? Uh, well, Seahawks aren't playing today. They played on Thursday. I'm just looking at other scores. I try so goddamn hard. <laughs> we Every wouldn't week. be recording right now if the Seahawks were playing. So. <laughs> True. All right, I'm ready. Are you guys ready? Yes. Or do you want to keep checking scores, Navia? All I have to say is my name, so I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> but you have already multiple times managed to not say your name, so. Look. 
I don't think that's necessary. Just because I think we, can, we can keep the beef. Let's keep the beef off the podcast. Just because you always say your name on time. <laughs> just because you know what your name is doesn't mean you're not my dad. Just because you Here know what is. your name this is. This is the breaking of the fellowship. <laughs> I love how it turned from remembering to say your name to just knowing what your name is. <laughs>